the new year came around, we sort of got back on our feet and went back to the restaurant, flipped up the shutter and tried to get on with it. We'll come together as a family, we'll, we'll heal, things will brighten. I had no idea how long and sort of strangling grief would be. Welcome to the Journey Into podcast, a series of inspiring stories from the yoga community. Episode 4, Reshaping Grief. So I grew up in South London, which isn't very exotic, but it was very green and leafy. And it was a real sort of local neighbourhood sort of upbringing in that all of my friends lived on the same road as me and it was a quiet residential street. And so I could see into their houses from our house. And that meant that in the summers we would play together in the street sort of until it got dark and our parents would call us in, which I think is quite atypical of London, certainly these days. Uh, but that was the early 80s. And we lived right next to a huge common, which is where we all played. And right up until our teenage years, in fact, that's where everybody hung out and socialised. And I had two older brothers. So I sort of grew up a tomboy playing war games and reading about the First World War and the Second World War and sort of being a bit of a punch bag for my brothers who fought a lot. My mum was an artist and my dad was a barrister. So there was this nice balance, I think, between the sort of creative and then more sort of rational, analytical, perhaps, mind and characteristics that my dad lent us. So me and my friend Rosie, when we were in our mid-twenties, we both worked in the art world. And it was the moment of the financial crash and also this moment where my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumour. And I think these two big moments, external events of the financial crash and my dad getting ill, made me wake up and realise that life was short and precious. And sort of about the same time, me and Rosie were going to this amazing soca aerobics class every Monday night in Brixton and sort of being pummeled by the, uh, by the intensity of this workout class and then coming home together and just making a salad. And we started calling this little Monday night get-together salad club. And from there, we decided to set up a food blog which we also called Salad Club. And it sort of slowly gathered followers. And within a very short space of time, we just decided to invite these followers to come round for supper and to turn my flat into a secret restaurant. I lived above Brixton Market at the time, so it was a very sort of atmospheric place to be. And so these strangers, sort of 20 or 30 strangers, would come for dinner every couple of Saturday nights and we'd be in this tiny galley kitchen next door cooking up a three-course meal. And I think about it now and it really wasn't great food, but it was such a novel concept, this idea of eating in someone else's home and, you know, people getting to poke around the bookshelves and, and look at the insides of somebody else's house. And at the end of the meal, 
we would wash up in the bath. We'd have a couple of friends like helping out with the waitress, waitressing roles. Sometimes we had friends come like sing sort of cabaret at the end of the night. And we'd sit down with all of these guests and get to know them over a few bottles of wine. And we'd stick the ashtrays out on the table and drink and smoke with them and turn the music up. And it was a real adventure. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were just enjoying it. It was just fun. At some point, we'd gathered this waiting list for our secret restaurant. I think there were maybe 100 or 200 people on the waiting list. It was quite something. And one of the people who ended up coming along was a literary agent. And our blog had sort of gathered pace. We were routinely, regularly writing, I think, quite sort of whimsical and funny and honest posts with lovely photography. Rosie did the the photos. And so we were sort of these fresh new voices, I think. And this agent came along to dinner and she followed us for a while and then she just said I really love what you girls do and would you be interested in putting together a book proposal I'm an agent so it was this amazing opportunity as I say we never ever saw it coming but it just sort of grew very naturally and organically out of our combination of being I guess good at writing good at photography good at cooking and good at sort of bringing people together and telling stories about food I think we became a brick and mortar restaurant in 2011. A year after we'd won the Observer Food Monthly uh, Award for Best Blog. And the same year that we finished up shooting the cookbook. So things happened really fast in a really short space of time. And at the same time, we were also launching and running the street food wing of our business. So. It felt like a very natural progression for us to put down roots in a building. And I think we had this fantasy that we'd cycle down the road every day, you know, like roll up the shutter, turn on the coffee machine and sit at the counter drinking coffee and sort of handing out lunch to people who came by and having our friends drop in. And all of that was true. And it was, you know, in many ways, it was a fantasy fulfilled. But again, neither of us had any idea what we were getting into and we were we were sort of overseen by really shoddy landlords who were managing a uh, just a really crooked operation basically in a building that was never maintained and never repaired and and yet we were right in the heart of Brixton village so we were surrounded by other local people also building their dreams into their restaurants and their cafes and the fun thing was we got to call it our names so we opened as French and Grace and we become this little brand we'd become this sort of little duo that that a lot of people locally knew and honestly I look at that time and I'm incredibly proud of what we did it was incredibly creative and it was also completely nuts So my dad had been diagnosed in 2009 with an inoperable brain tumour two months before we opened the restaurant. So while we were building it, he passed away at home. And that experience, those two years had been so fraught, so tense. It was an interesting 
sort of juxtaposition, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but an, an odd ju- juxtaposition to be going through big change in my career, having left my job in the art world to follow this dream of food and food writing and restaurant ownership and to be right in the middle of building and finishing off the build of this little restaurant when he died. And when the new year came around, we sort of got back on our feet and went back to the restaurant, flipped up the shutter and tried to get on with it. And I remember starting that new year thinking, okay, this one's going to be better. Like, we'll come together as a family, we'll, we'll heal, things will brighten. I had no idea how long and sort of strangling grief would be. The thing that got me out of bed every morning, at this point I was living with my boyfriend, and the thing that got me out of bed every morning was the vision and the hope of us one day being married and having children. And for me, that felt very important to sort of continue the bloodline, to continue my dad's memory and to know that there were brighter days ahead. Because otherwise, I couldn't get out of bed. I'd felt every morning like I'd been hit by a truck because the work was so demanding and the grief was so stifling and so so incredibly draining. So I'd get out of bed every morning and just think it's okay, I've got Tom and I've got our future. And there was this sort of gathering agreement between us that this would be the year that we would get married. We'd been together four years, or get engaged at least. And so I clung to that. And it got me through those early days of 2012. But by mid to late February, so just a few short weeks later, something had flipped in him. Something completely unrecognisable had switched. And out of the blue, he ended our relationship. And so this completely shocked me and, and knocked me sideways, completely devastated me. And I ended up moving out and going to live with my mum for for a few months. And it was from there, really, that, that these new, even deeper levels and layers of grief revealed themselves to me. And I, I really sank under the surface, really got dragged down by those waves. And somehow found myself still getting up to tend to this baby, to this restaurant that needed me. I really remember a feeling of very intense physical heartache after losing my dad and and losing Tom. And it felt very much as though I'd lost everything, the past, the present and the future. And as I say, this heavy, heavy, heavy feeling in the heart all throughout the day and all throughout the night. And I would go to bed hoping never to wake up and I would wake up dreading the rest of the day. There was nothing else to talk about for me. Like grief was the only thing I felt there was. And the only thing that I wanted to speak of 
And yet I couldn't find the conversation anywhere. Nobody wanted to access it. Nobody could. It was too much. I felt like I was emotionally burdening everybody, everywhere that I went. I was like the Grim Reaper. You know, I I was fascinated by it and consumed by it. And so I started going to like death cafes and going to these public spaces full of strangers who were also mourning and trying to get their head around loss and the way that it had reoriented their lives and their identities because that was so relieving for me. I, I felt like I could just unplug and like let out these words and emotions that nobody else in my sort of real life could relate to. This lovely girl started working for us in our restaurant on the floor on front of house and I told her during lunch what had happened to me and she said oh you should go and see this meditation teacher that I saw last year he's he's really helpful he really helped me through a difficult time at work recently when I was really stressed about my career and I remember thinking that is so insulting like how can you compare my losses with what your your stress at work and I didn't say that obviously but there was something in me and I don't know what to this day I do know don't know what made me decide to go and do it but I think I was so desperate and in some weird way I just think this girl found me and led me to this teacher deliberately because I went along to a meditation session I think maybe the following week on a Wednesday evening in this church hall in South London and I was so struck by the warmth of the space that he created. It was wintry and wet and dark and there was all these herbal teas available on the side and I sort of remember turning my nose up at the herbal teas but getting one anyway and sitting down on a bolster in a blanket and he would guide us through mindfulness of breath and also John Kabat-Zinn's body scans. So we'd either sit on bolsters or we'd lie on our backs and be guided. And it was such sweet relief. Like, here I was, you know, working probably 60, 70, 80 hours a week in the restaurant on my feet, serving people, managing a team, barely eating anything myself, smoking rollies, like 20 rollies a day, sort of wasting away spiritually and physically and mentally. And it was such sweet relief to be in the silence of this space and to have somebody else hold me. So it was from there that I started practicing yoga with the same teacher. And again, I think using that physical movement and that mindful movement was what helped me to process more deeply the grief that was living in my heart and living in my body. So I joined this two-year master's program in yoga studies at LMU in California, mainly because it had a really fascinating component to it, which was a year-long certificate that I took alongside the master's degree in yoga, mindfulness and social change. The degree itself, the master's program itself, was very dry. But as I say, what really drew me to doing it was 
the fact that I had to take a year-long certificate in another subject connected to yoga. And for me, I chose yoga, mindfulness and social change. Because I'd had this real light bulb sort of awakening when I came out of my 200-hour training, which was, I want to take this work, this practice, to all the places in the world where the suffering is most pronounced. Because if it worked for me, if it helped me restore my wholeness after being so badly broken, then I'm confident it can do the same in a restorative way in places where it wouldn't normally be accessed or even considered. During my master's programme, I was wanting to gain experience um, in working with the sorts of people that I was looking to work with on the other side of my MA. And I was given a contact through my anatomy and physiology teacher at UCLA. So there was a department called the Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behaviour within UCLA that was working with veterans who'd recently been um, deployed from Afghanistan and Iraq, who'd suffered PTSD as a result of their service. And they were going through this eight-week program with UCLA to heal the wounds of war. And it was an interdisciplinary program. So they did talking therapy, equine therapy, um, physiotherapy, and then yoga, trauma-informed yoga with me. It was a very new way of working for me. You know, I was used to yoga spaces that were very sort of lovey-lovey and everybody hand on heart and floating around in sort of baggy um, pantaloons and wafting incense. And here we were sort of lying on these cheap um, carpets in the middle of, uh, of sort of office meeting rooms at UCLA, rolling around while they just sort of took the piss out of each other and cracked up any time someone farted which happened quite a lot because we were doing quite a lot of um, apanasana, which is a wind-relieving pose. So I had to sort of really learn how to go with that, you know, and, and, and be led by the mood of the students. Um, and it was really good fun, you know. They, they, they were using humour to overcome their condition and their circumstances because a lot of the rest of their work, particularly the talking therapy, was very, very heavy. And it was a great learning experience so I was really honoured to, to do that and again I just think of that as a very as a real highlight of my time there. If you're enjoying the Journey Into podcast don't forget to subscribe to receive new episodes and if you're really enjoying our series we'd love it if you could leave us a review on the Apple podcast app or Spotify. So I'm back in London now. I've been back for three years and I've been building my teaching work, which has been quite a challenge. It's not easy to be a, a solopreneur, as it's called. I have been teaching um, consistently. It's my full-time work. I have a handful of private clients who I see regularly. And then the other strand of my work, which I also love, is I train yoga teachers in how to be trauma-informed and create social change with their practice through these 
month-long mentorships. They're all happening online. And it's really helping people to answer the question, how do I teach safely to those who've been traumatized? And how do I take this practice off the mat and into the world? I lecture four times a year. I run four courses a year at Queen Mary University University in East London, teaching a group of undergraduate medical students the neurophysiological benefits of yoga and meditation. I love that work because they're very... Um, impressionable and super stressed you know they've got a lot on their plate and they really value this time to get into the practice themselves and also learn from a sort of biomedical point of view how and why it works interestingly we've only just discovered sort of the value of this vagus nerve fairly recently and when we're in poor health, and I can definitely count grief and trauma as being poor health, the vagus nerve um, sort of loses its tone. It has a tone like any other muscle. And the connection between the brain and the body gets compromised. Specifically, when we're traumatized, we go into so much shock, we go into such a deep level of shock that the connection is completely cut off between the two. That's why we become disembodied, as it were and live in this head-only state. So we're no longer receiving feedback from the body about its well-being or how to look after it or how to even feel sentient within it because the pain has become intolerable. So we literally shut off. And what's really interesting is that yoga opens up that connection again. Yoga and meditation both open up that, that sort of highway between the brain and the body to bring us back into sentient uh, existence. I still worry about what's coming next and what the shape of my life is going to look like by the time I come to the end of it. I don't think grief does have an ending point, but I always want to say to people that might be going through it now that yes, it, it changes shape and one of the best metaphors that I can think of to describe it is that in the beginning, it's like you're standing in the water and these waves just keep coming and pummeling you and knocking you off your feet. And they come every 30 seconds and you get dragged under the surface of the water and you get swallowed whole by it and you don't know how to come back up to the surface and you're getting churned around and around and you think you'll never come up and you do. And then you have a few moments of rest before the next one comes. And gradually over time, those waves just get more and more spaced out. They become fewer and further between. And eventually I think it is an experience through which we find gratitude and appreciation. Thank you for listening to the Journey Into podcast. For more content from today's teacher, follow us on Instagram at journey.into or visit our website at journeyinto.com.